I, I, it was just like, uh oh. We found a Pokemon game. <laughs> Pokemon in the vodka. Hey, welcome to the Mount Rushmore podcast. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my good buddies, Richard Manfredi. Hello. And Michael Winfield. Howdy. These guys uh, have a lot of conflict. They have a lot of beef with each other. It's like East Coast, West Coast, except it's kind of like East and West um, Los Angeles. And they argue about the Mount Rushmore of life, the four things that best represent a certain topic. And they have asked me to jump in and serve as judge, jury, and executioner, and actually a concept a creator, because this topic was my topic, and that is TV cop partner teams, TV cop teams. I want to know uh, which of the enigmatic duos that have peppered the television landscape for years, cops who have differing personalities, have differing approaches, uh, cops who have differing backgrounds, who create such fun chemistry as they go out and try to book them, Dano, and try to find the bad guys. This was my topic, so I'm going to pick, uh, to go first, the senior cop on the force. This is uh, Officer Manfredi. Yeah, I'm, I'm too old for this shit, you yeah. guys. He made detective about 20 years ago, and uh, you know he's worked vice, he's worked narcotics, and, but now he's won a, he wants a cushy desk job to just kind of well, wait out the time I'm until retirement. I'm two weeks from retirement. <laughs> two weeks. I got my daughter's graduation coming up. Can you bump it up to this week? Yeah, like, <laughs> I wish I could, trust yeah. me. Well, I'll probably get shot. Right yeah, in the middle of this podcast. That's yeah. usually what happens. His boat, Happy Retirement, is parked out front. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, Richard, what's your first choice? So my first choice is Sonny Crockett and Rico Tubbs wow. from Miami Vice. Coming out swinging. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, so if you're looking at the 80s, they're the most 80s thing I think you could possibly imagine. Blinded by the neon of the 80s. Pretty much. I mean, pretty much weren't we all just walking around wearing like white or Armani suits with a t-shirt underneath yeah. because of uh, Sonny Crockett? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, they were really, I think, the prototype for the modern kind of TV cop team in that they were both kind of really cool, sort of like undercover, not really gritty so much as sort of on top of everything. Is it true that they nearly bankrupted the sock industry <laughs> the way that uh, Clark Gable almost bankrupted the uh, t-shirt industry in a... It happened one night. Possible. It's very possible, I think. Uh, so a little bit of background on them. They are both vice cops for the Miami-Dade Police Department. Uh, Crockett was a former football star. If you're a vice cop, does that mean that someone has to die and then you become just cop? Yeah, there's and a, you move uh, there's up a whole, into whole chain of command. The secretary is, of yeah. cops comes up after that, and then the Department of Agriculture cop. So Sonny did two tours in Vietnam, and meanwhile, Tubbs was an NYPD undercover cop, and they wound up working the same case in the pilot, and wound up, for some reason, Tubbs wound up deciding to transfer down to Miami. And that's how they became bestie friends. Hmm. So I and then partially, Tubbs was the one who was a little bit more streetwise, was maybe a little bit more cynical about the world. Um, he was the one who was... Not Don Johnson, by the way, in case we're curious. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. I didn't realize that the last episode of the series, they both realized they couldn't beat the drug cartels and just quit the force. That's oh, incredible. That's it. Yeah. What, what, that's like amazing a great message, kids. What amazing pessimism is that? That's ama I, Great <laughs> message, kids. By the way, if, if you come up against something that's really tough, you should probably quit. I, I'd, I'd just walk away. Was was uh, I think of cop shows like Streets of San Francisco had a location and crime 
together. And it seems like Miami was a perfect backdrop at that time in the 80s. Oh, sure. It was all played off that Scarface sort of, yeah. you know, Colombian drug cartels and mm-hmm. kind of all of that. And also the fact that you had basically every B-rate musician in the world showing up yeah. for a guest appearance, whether it was Sheena Easton or Phil Collins mm-hmm. or Alice Cooper, I believe, may have made a guest spot at some point. Was there something that attracted you as a kid? Because I think I was a teenager when this came out. So I Oh, they were just the coolest. I mean, yeah. they were just, you know, again, they were sort of fashion icons and style icons, and they were like, the cool cops. Yeah. And then, you know, be, I don't think before on TV you ever saw cops as being like cool. You always right. saw them as like Joe Friday kind of yeah. s- stiff, kind of square jaw, or even something like the Mod Squad necessarily. Yeah. You know, maybe it was a little bit of, of that, but this is the first time it was like mm-hmm. cool. It almost seemed like American Gigolo yeah. cops where they, they <laughs> yeah. had the latest suits and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. I uh, I got to admit something. I've never seen a Miami Vice. I think it just it just hit at the. I, yeah, you're probably just too young for it. Mm-hmm. I was like I ten, maybe. Probably never stayed up late enough to watch it. Or, I, I, I mean, it's funny because it has such a. It's so iconic. It's like um, everything is neon, and you know, Archer recently did an entire series yeah. uh, from the cartoon that was based all on just Miami Vice mm-hmm. or just the look, and it's it's iconic. But I just have no reference for it. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, it, 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 they, uh, if you go back and watch them, I watched a couple in prep for this. They, they're still really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still holds up. In, you know, yeah, is it later. Michael Mann? Did he create it? Was Michael Mann was one of the creators of it. Okay. Yeah. I have never, I haven't seen the movie, so I, I can't pass judgment on that, but I'm guessing it kind of sucks. And he did Heat, which I think was originally filmed as Miami Takedown. Was and it? Heat is almost a shot for shot remake of Miami Takedown which uh, seemed like it was an extension of that storytelling of Miami Vice. I, I'm fascinated, too, though. Like Phil, Philip Michael Thomas. Think of these larger-than-life actors who, um, like, if you thought Don Johnson wasn't arrogant enough, he worked with Philip Michael Thomas. Exactly. <laughs> who who coined the term EGOT, right? Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, when, when you manage to be the smallest ego in a cast and you're Don Johnson, yeah. Mr. Heartbeat, Yeah. that's pretty impressive. Which is weird because now it's EGOT. A, that if you are really successful, you win an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, a Tony, and an AVN Award is the last one that you have to get. <laughs> what about what about the uh, the People's Choice Awards? Kids' Choice Awards, too. You got Apka. Nickelodeon Award with the surfboard. Yeah, Espy. Uh-huh. You got Apka MTV Music Award. Yeah. BT Award. Uh, also, I think, I think we've run out of letters. <laughs> okay, what's your first one, Michael? Uh, I had a nice through line uh, going through that I had a, a really big theme for all four of them. As in categories? Uh, no, but just like a... Just like a it's, it's almost theme. like, you know, when a detective is putting all the pieces together and they, everything leads back to the guy at the top and everything was leading back one way. And then I realized, well, I had to include Joe Friday uh, and uh, Frank Smith from Dragnet. And that oh, yeah. threw everything out of... Out of, out of whack. So, yeah. like, so my, all of my, you know, my, uh, the motivations of this entire thing just was like, oh, hey, fuck. Hey, just the facts, Michael. Uh, funny oh, you thing. Should, you guys should know that. Never said on the show. Really? Yeah. Speaking right now is uh, Sergeant Winfield. Uh, That's he's, right. uh, he's This is the city, <laughs> Los Angeles, California. I work here. I'm a podcaster. Transfer. It was July 28th, 2016. It was 80 degrees and sunny. Working day shift out of the North Hollywood Division. Captain is Jeff Hopkins. My partner is Richard Manfredi. My name is Winfield. 
What just, I, I just wrote that. Like, that was pretty what just, amazing. What just happened? I don't know. I Did like we his... just turn into Welcome to Night Vale? What just <laughs> happened here? I was uh, impressed. So uh, the funny thing, so through this process, I realized that, that my TV cop teams, it wasn't just like two people. It tends to be one main character and a partner that kind of rotates in. So we'll, we'll see sure. that throughout. So uh, Joe Friday, back from the uh, TV series, um, I guess it was a radio series before that, and made multiple like iterations as they tried to revive this thing. Um, what, but the TV series uh, had Joe Friday and his partners, uh, Ben Romero and Frank Smith and Bill Gannon. And uh, you know, the important one out of all of those guys was Friday. He was very... Uh, wry and straightforward and uh, was kind of the hard-nosed detective didn't wasn't like a family man yeah. didn't have kids and things that distracted him he was there to solve crimes and uh it kind of set like the tone for all police straight men and detectives mm -hmm. going forward um i just thought that you kind of had to have like a very iconic character for Mount Rushmore, even though the rest of mine are going to go yeah. kind of off the, off the handle. Right. Friday seemed to be the last bastion of conservatism in many of the episodes he was facing hopped up drug addict kids and vandals and juvenile delinquency. Oh, and Yeah, especially when you get to the second one, which is the, uh, the one with Harry Morgan, the one with Colonel Potter as the uh, sidekick. Hmm. What's, what was the character's name? I don't know. Conlon or... I don't remember. There are too many like iterations of it to, like, pay attention to of Dragnet. Right, because it was Bill Gannon. Okay, that's who he was, and that was the one because they, it, if I remember right, it went off the air for most of the sixties, and then it came back, like for the late sixties. From sixty-seven to seventy. Yeah, so that was the one where you really got like, they have to investigate Those damn beatnet kids, beatnet kids, yeah. or hippies who are selling you know acid or something like that. Mm -hmm. Versus before, it was a lot of like breaking and entering type stuff. Yeah, it seems like Sonny and Cher would be guests sometimes as misunderstood musician kids or something like that. I think my main my main memory of I mean, as a kid, my memory of Dragnet was the kind of goofy Dan Aykroyd, Tom Hanks one, <laughs> where uh, Aykroyd was he was playing it straight, but there was always something still kind of askew about it. Right, and it was it had a, you know a ridiculous storyline that I believe involved the. If you, you know, yeah, in like all cult 80s cultists, movies, didn't it? It was it was like punk cultists, yeah. and if it involved a zoo setting, <laughs> that was a that was a big big theme. I mainly just remember the uh, song with I think believe it was the Fat Boys who did the theme song. <laughs> um, but I guess they tried to revive it one one last time in 2003 with Ed O'Neill as Friday. Mm. Oh yeah, a little serious, not it's not comedic. Yeah. Well, he did have his hand down his pants for the entire episode, <laughs> which I thought was kind of disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> But I no the, no to be honest the things you remember from that are the theme song and you remember the giant hand stamping out the uh, Mark Seven Productions mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah. logo at the end it's which was, by the way was Jack Webb's uh, production company I that's know he, what I've heard he's one he was so militantly like he he was Joe Friday and he also engineered the production so that. The actors didn't ever have to move, that they would roll the sets around them. The sets were all on casters, so the actors <laughs> would fascinating. stand still. <laughs> they would move the sets into place uh, surrounding them. So we've already, we've got each have our first choice, and I think we've finally found a nice dichotomy. In Miami Vice, we have these cops who are almost as cool and edgy as the criminals. And then in Dragnet, we have a cop who is definitely hardcore towing the line on the side of justice. So 
Let's see what comes up with our second choices. So I am actually going to stay with the old-timey TV route and go with Andy Taylor and Barney Fife from oh, the Andy wow. Griffith Show. This is a really fun pick. This yeah. is kind of unexpected. I like this already. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, they are kind of the prototype for the kind of quality sheriff or the, the, the really sensible down-to-earth kind of sh- sheriff or police chief and then the really bumbling manic sort yeah. of subordinate yeah well it's weird and like i've noticed in a lot of my picks too that, you know i think we talked about it when we did our and partnerships with like with abbott and costello there's always like a straight man and like an oaf with fife with with him being so by the book but also like so incompetent yeah. at the same time he i mean didn't he he won like the emmy award like almost every oh, year yeah, for that yeah. show. Just yeah, for basically, that yeah, like he won like seven. I don't know. I think also because it was like some of the great cop shows, it wasn't a cop show. It wasn't a procedural. It's basically about drunk. life in this yeah. small town and sometimes crime things would come yeah, up. Yeah, a pie gets stolen. Yeah, basically, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the first season, actually, um, Andy Griffith played Andy Taylor as more of a kind of wide-eyed bumpkin. Hmm. You know, he was more of a, like his characters that he had played in a lot of the movies and his comedy stuff like the what it was was football or mm-hmm. the no time for sergeants yeah. and after the first season he went back and rewatched it and realized hey wait a second i'm the straight man here mm-hmm. i'm not the one who's providing the comedy i've got all these crazy characters in town around me including barney fife my best role is just to be the straight man be the sensible person yeah be the voice of reason that just let all this craziness kind of happen mm-hmm. around me which we'll round up like you said basically Don Knotts stole that whole show, you know. It's just such a incredible portrayal of this guy who wants to be a, the voice of authority, but in fact has no authority and no reason for anyone to believe him at yeah. all. So it it's something I grew up watching. It's one of the few early sitcoms, I think, or I don't even I don't even know if you call it a sitcom, but one of the few early TV shows that really you can go back and watch, and it doesn't feel Mm-hmm. I don't want to say dated, but it still it still works. Yeah. So I I just I I really love this show. What I think is fascinating about those two choices too is uh, between Dragnet, um, which was kind of acknowledging that the '60s and urban unrest and all that stuff was happening. Uh, in the world of Mayberry, nothing like that was happening. It was so myopic. They had no black people. <laughs> they had no no real crime and no real. It was a world that people came to because it was impervious to change. Mayberry had no acknowledgement of civil rights, of youth protest, of Vietnam, of all that stuff that was happening. So yeah. If you're, uh, if you're ever in Danville, Indiana, check out the Mayberry Cafe. Okay. Which Next uh, time I've been, been to with uh, my wife, Emily. She's from uh, a town near there. And they have, like, the real-life uh, cop oh, wow. car wow. from... I don't know if it's the actual one, but it, it's mm-hmm. you know it looks just like it just parked right out in front and just moved all that's, the time. That's great, and of course, the, what I love about that show is it kicked off all the Hayseed shows that came after. Think of Beverly Hillbillies, sure, Green yeah. Acres, uh, Petticoat Junction, Petticoat Junction, which pro- uh, profligated through TV for quite some time. These funny hicks who we, took us back in time. Yeah, I mean they were, you know, like I said, kind of funny hicks, although it was more kind of. I don't know that you would look at Don Knotts. I don't even know if he really tried to play that with a... Did he really have a Southern accent, would you say? I don't think so. Yeah, he was more just... Just crazy exaggerated. Yeah, just uh, manic. Yeah. You know, just... But in a way that it never became annoying. Yeah. 
in the way that most sitcom second bananas wind up just wearing out their welcome after a couple of seasons. The funny story, Gene Levy does an impersonation of the guy who played Floyd. I'm forgetting his name. Floyd the Barber, yeah. Floyd the Barber, who had a stroke between season two and season three. So, like, season two, he's up walking around the barbershop. All, all the haircuts get really crazy <laughs> by season three. Yeah. <laughs> season three, he's just sitting in the chair and not moving his arms. That's not funny. I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, Michael, what's your second choice? Uh, my next choice is uh, Detective... Lenny Briscoe with his partners, Mike Logan, Ray Curtis, and Ed Green from Law and & Order. And uh, once again, uh, there's really kind of one star between like the partnership, and it is Lenny Briscoe, who is a uh, sarcastic, uh, half-Catholic, half-Jewish detective mm. uh, in New York City. And uh, I've like if there was like a show that I watched more than The Simpsons or as much as The Simpsons, it was Law and Order, mm -hmm. especially into like my twenties as when it started coming on like TNT. But you couldn't avoid it. it was you would turn on the TV and it automatically flip, no matter what channel you wanted to go to, to TNT, and you'd be about a quarter of the way through an episode and be like, oh, well, I, I got to <laughs> stick around to see where this is going. And then you know, by the end of Act Two, you thought it was going. Oh no, it's always it's always not the person that they initially yeah. catch. Yeah. Um, but I, I really like uh, Jerry Orbach as, yeah. as Briscoe and um, his partners. You know, it, they they kept him constant, but like all of his partners, kind of their personality was the one that they kept trying to find new ways to play off mm -hmm. of it. Like uh, the first one, uh, Mike Logan, played by, um, who is it, Chris Knopf, Mr. Big. Yeah. Um, he was uh, very, he was very passionate in his police work. Like he, he hated... Uh, like abuse towards women and children and eventually uh, I think he was thrown off the force for like punching a councilman and then his next uh, his next partner was um, I thought he was thrown off the force because he just couldn't commit <laughs> to one woman <laughs> so that's uh, his next uh, partner was uh, Ray Curtis and he was a lot more conservative um, as as a character and then um, uh, Ed Green was uh, a little bit more freewheeling freewheeling and more of uh not like a uh, who's uh, like a dirty hairy sort of type character, right? So what was great about Jerry Orbach too, or um, Briscoe was that he had all these one-liners, which apparently he wrote himself. Oh, really? I didn't when know he that. first when he first came on the sh you know on the show and was there, he was I guess he was a bit of a comedian, so he, he felt like he had had some sort of black comedy to it. So um, Jeff and I are going to perform um, some excerpts. From so, Law and Order. So, Jeff, why don't you, since you're an actual comedian, why don't you read the Detective Lenny Briscoe lines, and I'll be the uh, either the other cop or the uh, or the doctor. So, okay, <clears throat> this is referring to murder victim. Talk screen shows she had one drink, tops, no signs of sex. Sounds like my last date. But um, oh, may maybe Richard, maybe can you do like the um dun dun yeah, after one chung dun dun. Okay. Do you, know, do you want a dun dun or chung chung? Dun-dun-dun. Okay. Caught. Took one in the chest. Drove up the block like a bat out of H-E double hockey sticks. What precinct are you from, Sesame Street? Dung-dung. CSU technician. Can you imagine dying while reading Moby Dick? Yeah, it almost killed me once. Dung-dung. Caught. I called the father, Gary Silver. Know that name? Yeah. Big Broadway producer. Got more Tonys than... Southern Italy. Dong dong. And this is the last one. This is Detective John Munch. Look at all these women. They're all gorgeous. And happy. 
If they ever invent artificial sperm and a machine that opens jars, we're out of business. Dong dong. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> like he. There you go, that everybody. Was pretty great. The Law and Order players. Uh, I just, I just always loved the character, and I always loved, like, his relationship, which with, with whatever second detective he yeah. was teamed up with, and then you know, obviously they yeah. also related to the order part. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I, I was a little surprised in the first couple of seasons. Where Briscoe would have a singing number every time. Every time that was I always thought that was a little strange. <laughs> As of course, veteran. Jerry Orbach has a uh, had a musical background yeah. before. He was in the was it the Fantastics. Fantastics, and he was the first Billy Flynn in was Chicago. He? Yeah, and L- Lumiere from uh, Beauty and the Beast, I think. Which is funny because Ed Green was in Rent or something, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was the, the original <laughs> one of the original characters in Rent. Yeah, <laughs> these cops could at any moment break out in a production of South Pacific. And I believe Sam Waterston was a uh, was in the the association, the band. Really? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. No, not at all. All right, I'm uh, gullible. So we're about halfway through our choices, and at this point, I want to ask you to give us your suggestions on who you think the coolest and bestest cop teams are by joining us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or even uh, Snapchat. I'm going to start a Snapchat for us, guys. FYI. And I think uh, we'd love these guys would love to hear who your favorite cop teams are, and we'd just love to hear what kind of uh, uh, um, topics you'd love for us to tackle in the future. Please get in the dialogue with us. Please go to mountrushmorepodcast.com. That's where you'll see all of our episodes. You can click on the link that'll take you to uh, iTunes where you can rate and review, and that's very valuable to us because it helps other people find out uh, if this podcast is right for them and lets us know what you think. So. Uh, please do all those things. And we've got a Twitter handle. We've got a Facebook. We've got all that stuff. Just we've, search. We've got a grinder, by the way. So if you've got any dick pics, <laughs> go ahead and send them to Jeff. Yeah, Tinder, swipe left on us. Uh, so, yeah, so we'd appreciate your support. Okay, we're starting our uh, act two, our second half. Um, I guess if this were a procedural cop show. We would have, we'd have caught the suspect. Yeah. Although, ultimately, it's not, not, not the right guy. Yeah. we got to go back to the friendly deli owner at the beginning who really was the murderer or something. So uh, we've come back from a commercial. We've, we're kind of chasing down these clues. And um, Richard, what's your third choice? Well, I'm going to stand up for the ladies here. And I'm going to go with Cagney and Lacey. All right. The very popular, multiple-time Emmy-winning Emmy winning show from the 1980s. Uh, what do you like about the show? Well, Christine Cagney, played by Sharon Glass, she was a single c- career-minded woman, and she was partnered with whatever the hell, Mary Beth Lacey, who was Tyne Daly. And she was more of a, she was a married, she was a working mother, she was a little bit more streetwise. And I just think it's, it's relevant, because it, I mean, it was the first time that you had females as cops, and especially females working together as cops. Well, it's a good thing that Rizzoli and Isles killed that trend. <laughs> well, I, you're spoiling my f- fourth choice, Michael. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, it, it was a really good show. It was also, t- it was also interestingly enough, a show that uh, got canceled twice and came back, which is a pretty wow. rare thing to pull mm-hmm. off. Um, the first season actually did not have Sharon Glass as... Cagney, it had Meg Foster. Okay. And they wound, the, wound up getting basically canceled after eight episodes. Fans wound up, or the, they wound up getting it back on the air, but the produ- people at CBS said, well, we need to get rid of Med- Meg Foster. She's too aggressive, and people think she's a lesbian. So they wound up recasting her for the second time around with Sharon Class, 
Then it got canceled after another year, but it but in between it won a bunch of Emmys. And there's a huge letter writing campaign to bring back Cagney and Lacey. It was even when they did decide to bring it back, it was on the cover of TV Guide, something like, You asked for it, now they're back. And it wound up running <laughs> for like five or six seasons after that, mm-hmm. becoming a top ten hit. And it was Can you imagine the people actually writing a letter? We live in such a strange age where like I feel so passionate about Cagney and Lacey that I'm going to sit down and yeah. write to what what a uh, CBS. Write to CBS and demand. That is and pretty enough fun. and enough people did that that they're like, well, we got to do it. Well, you, you rarely see look that. Look at all these letters. Look at these letters. All addressed to Santa Claus. You I rarely even see like any sort of petition in that in that way like the the 3.4 million Brexit people that petitioned to the government to get that a, a revote they're like, nah. Mm-hmm. Well, because now you all you need to do is just basically fill out fill out a form click on click on an online form and there's no there's no like work to be done in that but actually sit down hand write a letter i'm assuming unless you have a typewriter um, electrotype or something you know write a letter sign it have to take it to the post office put a stamp all this kind of crap that we don't have to do anymore hundreds of thousands of people did this pretty powerful hundreds of thousands of people apparently had nothing better to do with their time Mm -hmm. in the 80s there's nothing going on in the 80s, clearly, that they could have been doing something else about, then to just write CBS about this, you know, show, it's, it's you're right, it's incredible. What was the, I don't remember, some of, some, of, some of what distinguishes these shows are not the cops, but the bad guys? Yeah. What kind of crimes did they solve? It was a lot of murder type stuff, or maybe, because there was, they, they think they did some with sexual assault mm-hmm. or domestic abuse, stuff like that. So I, I, I do remember, I think, that a lot of the, Crimes they solved were more female-centric. Okay. So I think it's important. I mean, we joke about Rizzoli and Isles, and, but if you look at a lot of the cop shows today are female-centric, mm-hmm. whether it's Bones or Castle or there's one with Mary McDonald. I can't remember what that mm-hmm. is right now. Another TNT uh, special. But a lot of these shows now are very either female-driven or in a lot of cases, targeted towards females. Mm-hmm. That was never the case before Cagney and Lacey. Okay, so my third is uh, Detective John Munch and St- Stanley Bolander from Homicide Life on the Street. Is that Ice T's character? No, that's a Finn Tutola from uh, Law and Order SVU, also with detect- Detective John Munch. Yeah. Who is also in Arrested Development. As John Munch. I think we discussed this before. The the many characters. The X-Files, The Beat, Law & Order, Trial by Jury, 30 Rock, and The Wire. Um, So John Munch, played by Richard Belzer. It's amazing that one guy has played this one character for 20 years. He showed up. Yeah, we talked about this before. And it's amazing. must have totally forgotten. But I guess we're going to talk about it again. again. Especially with a character or an actor with such dramatic range as Richard Belzer would do Mm -hmm. one part for so long. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, He went from uh, sarcastic to cynical, right on back to sarcastic, (laughs) maybe skeptical, back to sarcastic. Um, when he busts Eeyore in the Winnie the Pooh TV animated <laughs> series, as John, as John Munch, as John Munch, um, he was uh, the character was inspired by uh, Jay Landsman, who was a real life detective mm-hmm. that was in the I guess the book that inspired Homicide: Life yeah. on the Street. But also Jay Landsman was a character that I was reading that was in The Wire as well. So it was weird for the real life character to be kind of 
in there yeah. twice yeah. on the wire. But he also, you know, kind of like Jerry Orbach was like the comedic relief uh, that kind of cast like a side-eyed view of everything. Yeah. He was, yeah. uh, you know, kind of a conspiracy nut too. And that kind of came out <laughs> like uh, an episode of the X-Files. But um, I, I guess I've always I've always liked the idea of like this this through character in pop culture that has only done this one real real thing. I mean, aside from being a stand up comic, I've always like just like him being cast against someone else kind of made him stand out more than anything else. Sure, absolutely. Okay, Richard, what's your third? I'm sorry, your fourth. Well, I am going to go slightly obscure here. I'm kind of taking a. As a Hail Mary, sort of, but uh, going British as well. So I'm going with Sam Tyler and Gene Hunt from the UK series Life on Mars. Not the American version, because that... Mm-hmm. So, the basic premise, if you have not seen it, and I would, by all means, encourage you to go see it, find a way it's on DVD, is that Sam Tyler is a modern detective who gets hit by a car and goes into a coma. When he wakes up from the coma, he is in... He's like, I think he's a cop in London. When he wakes up, he is in Manchester in 1973, and he goes to the police station, and everyone is referring to him as the, as the <coughs> excuse me, and everyone is referring to him as the new detective that just got transferred in from London. So he, they just expect there's Detective Tyler from London who just got transferred in, and meanwhile he's desperately trying to figure out a way to get back to his own time. He doesn't know if he's in a coma or if he doesn't know if he's t- actually time travel. Richard, are you sure this isn't Austin Powers? It, it sounds like Austin Powers. Well, why doesn't he just then climb? Then he was frozen for why a bit. Why doesn't he just climb into his TARDIS or whatever he, the hell it is? Yeah. I mean, sounds very All British suspicious. people have a TARDIS, right? Yeah, I think you have to be. I know you have to, pay, have to get a TARDIS license. Yeah. I don't know if he got one or not. Well, I love a fish out of water premise. Yeah, yeah, basically. So he winds up, while he's trying to figure out how to get back to his time, he winds up deciding, well, I'm going to go ahead and just work for the police, and the, his CID is Gene Hunt, who is this big, hulking, kind of intimidating lump of a uh, police officer. Very 70s in his approach to it. You know, Not a lot of reading of rights or making sure that the uh, suspect is comfortable before you start interrogating him. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of, a lot of punching, a lot of hitting, a lot of not waiting for uh, you know, search, search warrants to come in. So what you get is this clash between Sam, who is very by the book, very modern in his approach, versus this very visceral type of cop. And Sam certainly gets confused. He can't use DNA. He can't use all this modern type of evidence, that evidentiary work that he would do. So it's really for him having to go back to real basic sort of cop work. He keeps reaching for his cell phone and nothing's there. <laughs> I think they actually talk. I think that actually comes up at some point. Yeah. It's so you've got this total how do you not clash of styles, but it's not because it's oh one guy's cranky and the other mm-hmm. guy's optimistic. It's like no, they are literally from these completely different decades of police work, and over time, Gene winds up re- respecting Sam's wanting to keep things by the book, and Sam winds up kind of understanding and appreciating Gene doing whatever it takes to solve the crime. So they kind of rub off on each other a little bit as the series goes on. So, like I said, I, I just I think I think, think it's, it's oh, I was gonna say I just think it's a great way to set up this kind of cop show and the sort of cliched one cop is this, the other cop is that, but not but do it in a really different way. 
I think it's interesting in that um, on, on all these cop shows, or at least how they're portrayed, and it seems like police officers like are they're almost destined to be police officers. Like there's something that's internal in them. Like he couldn't like either your sense of justice is so strong or like he couldn't help but do but be this you know try to solve society's woes or to try to to fight crime They're, like whatever that internal D dna or thing that you're like that internal motivation seems to be kind of like bred into you or, or born into yeah. you because you know my first thought is I, you know i i'm thinking jokingly like why don't why would you do that why wouldn't you just if you have 25 years of future knowledge you know invest in something and then just be rich or whatever but like that that Obviously, that doesn't make an interesting TV show, but it's not yeah, like twenty-five not years of investment of sound investments doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like it's not like if I went back, you know, twenty-five years or thirty years, I would know exactly what mm -hmm. to invest. Well, in what either. would you or, do? You know, because but that's, a, that's like, the thing is, like, I wouldn't be like, well, I have zero money that I'm going to buy yeah. Apple stock in, or I'm going to invent a cell phone. It. How the hell am I going to invent yeah. a cell phone? I don't know how cell phone. The only works. way it kind of worked in Back to the Future was that he had a literal, you know. A betting guide and all the scores you know, right, written or, down. He or, or he, he, Army in Darkness, where he had literally a chemistry, like a school book mm -hmm. in his uh, in his trunk. But I, I think that sort of that sort of motivation that to be a cop is is very personal. So I, I think this is a good pick. Yeah. And I just to point out, if I made this sound kind of sci-fi and dry, it's a very funny show. It's it's serious in some in some cases, but it's also very very funny, and they. They do things like one of the uh, openings is actually like a 70s sort of Gumby and Pokey claymation version of the two as, oh, as he's walking yeah. in on, on Gene sort of like beating the crap out of somebody. And they, they do a little twist on things like that throughout the series. So it's 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 funny. It's like I said, an innovative way to kind of set up the, uh, the show. If you get a chance to watch it, please go see it. All right, Michael, what's your fourth and final? Uh, speaking of funny, uh, Detective Jake Peralta and Charles Boyle from the TV comedy Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Right. Which I have never seen. You would love it. Probably. It's great. Um, so this is set in, uh, obviously, the Brooklyn, the priest, the, the 99th precinct. precinct. Yeah, in Brooklyn, in uh, New York City, uh -huh. New York, United mm. States, Earth. Um, again, uh, Jake Peralta is a very capable t police detective, but he's also a practical, uh, he's, he's a prankster. Mm. He uh, likes to have a good time, kind of likes to loaf around, doesn't like to take things very seriously, and is kind of um, at odds with... So he's a millennial, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, and he's teamed up most of the time with uh, Detective Boyle, who is... Uh, he is a pushover himself. <laughs> he's uh, kind of the guy that's in the precinct that everyone makes fun of. Is that the Joe Latrulia character? It's the Joe Latrulio. Okay. character and every once in a while he's also teamed up with um uh, amy santiago who is the traditional by the book very serious but also it kind of acts as his foil and his love interest in it as well um andre brower in the show plays uh commander or um commandant holt yeah and he is he originally was my thought of like, oh, what's what's the through line that I because I really really liked um, Andre Brower on uh, Homicide back in the day. Right. Yeah. He was probably the most passionate, most intense character I think that I've ever seen on TV. But it's it's fun to see a guy like that kind of take some of that intensity and turn it into a comedic performance. But 
aside, going back to Jake Peralta, he is like, there is a great comedy there, and there is an oafishness about him, mm-hmm. or a, you know, you know, Andy Samberg is just he's a wildly funny comedian, but he's also like a great detective and prides himself on that. And like within the show, they're always kind of um, setting up competitions on who can have the most arrests and he loves going undercover and loves doing these things and ultimately has to learn the ways within the, how to deal with his new commander of Mm -hmm. of Holt. But it's, it's really a great show. I think Rich, I can't believe you haven't seen it. There's a lot of stuff I haven't seen. I don't watch, I I don't watch a lot of TV. So to be fair, I just don't watch a lot of modern stuff. Mainly it's Andy Griffith show that I'm watching. (laughs) Is it improvised or is there, or is it no, written? I think it's okay. I think it's all written. I, I I didn't read anything where where it was improvised, but I I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, all of the people on there, are, um, Terry Terry Crews yeah. is on there, and he's just this guy's this incredible, great. massive yeah. human being. But like also super funny. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Latrulia, who we've talked about it. I love how he's on. made a career out of just being the guy who walks in, says something completely weird, <laughs> slinks off. <laughs> um, but Jake Peralta is just a, a great character and not one that you'd kind of expect from like Andy Samberg. I think that there's a mm-hmm. lot of, I mean, I guess you'd expect like the, the wacky aspects, but yeah. like the seriousness of him mm-hmm. um, at times really comes through. Yeah. So uh, each of these uh, hot hothead cops has registered their four choices. And now it's- No, my- you're out of order. <laughs> Look, I got one month left before my retirement. I don't want any funny stuff, okay? Well, uh, if you don't want any not funny get stuff, that not here. here. Thank you. <laughs> um, so it's uh, my opportunity right now to say uh, what my choice was, and that was maybe not the best cop show I ever saw, uh, but the first cop show I ever saw as a kid, and it was a show called Holmes and Yo-Yo. You've got four partners in the hospital. Come on, Alex, you're a good cop. By the way... Who's my new partner? We call him Yo-Yo. He weighs 427 pounds. He's a completely mobile computer, specially programmed for police work. And it was created by the people who created um, Get Smart. Wait, did that have that big Brad Garrett-looking guy? Okay. Yeah, that big Brad Garrett guy was uh, Richard Scholl, or it was John Shuck, and uh, Richard Scholl was his partner. Home, a yo-yo was a robot, and a very simplistic robot. If you think of how complicated uh, Robbie the robot was from uh, Lost in Space, imagine a much less complicated-looking robot who had what looks like a TI-100 calculator in his chest and a reel-to-reel tape recorder in his back. I loved Holmes and Yo-Yo because, as a kid, I always had a huge affinity for robots, and I loved that show, uh, Shields and Yarnell. <laughs> Anytime a person was acting like a robot, I was really happy. And it was just kind of a wacky, uh, buddy comedy cop film not not at all gritty but just a lot of fun shields and, and yarnell would have been a great cop series by the way just it wasn't a cop series? mime cops <laughs> mime cops that would be amazing <laughs> just no no dialogue for the whole episode just <laughs> just mimes mime cops um but uh so now it's my uh dubious duty as ju- judge to pick a winner and really does anybody win in a city that's full of crime like this you're not going to do a tie again are you no i'm not Thank i'm not going to do a tie uh, I think all of us think cops are a great subject matter. Like Michael was saying, there's probably few occupations, priest, doctor, cop, where the person is really kind of more than just a regular person. They can do things. They can take the law into their own hands. Sometimes they take people's lives in their own hands. So it's really fascinating when you have these big, strong egos and then have two of them sharing a job, sharing a cop car, sharing a desk, 
in a precinct and having to make decisions as partners. And it always makes for, I think, uh, great drama, great comedy when you see it. Okay, so now's my uh, opportunity to kind of rehash the choices and uh, evaluate a winner. You know, Richard chose TV cop teams, Crock and Tubbs from Miami Vice, Andy Taylor and Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith Show, Cagney and Lacey, uh, Sam Tyler and Gene Hunt from Life on Mars. And uh, he was kind of, uh, he wrote down the uh, um, word Jessica from Murder, She Wrote, and just passed it to me. I don't know and what just that was a question all. mark <laughs> with like, <laughs> actually it was a heart with my initials <laughs> and her initials. <laughs> Um, and Mike, Michael chose um, Joe Friday uh, and his many partners from Dragnet, Lenny Briscoe, and his many partners from Law & Order, John Munch, and his partners from uh, Law & Order SVU and Homicide Life on the Streets, and Jake Peralta and Charles, Charles <laughs> and he chose Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> and you know who I went with? I went with Richard. I think Richard took us to more places geographically. Other than Baltimore, Michael was really stuck in New York, I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think Richard did a better job on this one. I'll, I, I'll concede when uh, he stuck to the theme a little bit better than I did. I, I do think, I'm Michael, shocked. Michael, you, you really embraced, you embraced the theme because these guys were all really, really cops first and kind of character second. And I think uh, Richard went with, uh, really went outside the box. Did I say that? And shows a lot of characters who uh, kind of had a lot of humor or aspects of the show, like time travel, or the fact that it was really kind of just about uh, Andy Griffith's show was really just kind of about a, a a smart guy in the country who was incidentally a cop. But I'm going to go with Richard on this one. And uh, Richard, congratulations, you made it to retirement. You didn't get in sh you didn't <sighs> get shot, Michael. We need to see you bring your badge and your gun. I'm getting busted down <laughs> to private, <laughs> not to uh, lieutenant. To Get ready know. to walk the streets is all I'm saying. <laughs> well, as always, we implore you to check us out um, online, mountrushmorepodcast.com, or search us out on social media. Just Google Mount Rushmore Podcast. Uh, that's been this week's episode. We're going to hang up our badges. I'm Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael. 